take you beyond the margin, behind the scenes of the online magazine and deeper into the stories. I'm your host, Michael Shields, and after a trio of really, really fun music-centric podcasts, you should really check those out, three amazing bands. We're going to dive into something a little more weighty and uh, complex, but fascinating and very, very important. We're going to discuss uh, the climate crisis, um, climate change, and we do that an interview with writer and researcher Samuel Miller McDonald. Samuel Miller McDonald is a regular essayist at such notable publications as Current Affairs, The New Republic, and The Baffler. And that's just to name a few. His essays can be found all over the place. Currently, he's working towards his PhD at the University of Oxford, where he is researching the intersection of grassroots movements and energy transitions. His um his articles out there are hard hitting timely and important. They're all steeped in climate change and the crisis that, um, that we are confronting right now. And um, they've just, they just blew my mind. And, you know, I reached out to him and he came on. And so we kind of walked through each of the articles in the episode. And in doing so, we, we explore the absurdities of our current, current fossil fuel food system. Uh, we talk about the under-discussed scandal of the U.S. bipartisan commitment to fossil fuels, which I believe is not discussed enough. We talk about how a new generation of authoritarian leaders are using climate change to seize power. Um, and and we, we, we discuss what the future might look like if, uh, if we do find a way to move towards decarbonized, climate-resilient, and equitable cities of tomorrow. That's... It, that article is amazing. It's about the cities of tomorrow, what they, what they really could look like. Um, and ultimately, and this is where his articles really get me, um, there's, there's, there's hope in there and there's suggestions of what we can do. So we talk about what millennials and, and people in general can do personally to fight climate change, which is so, so very important. Just a reminder that Across the Margin, the podcast, is part of the Osiris Network. Osiris is a global community connecting passionate fans with podcasts and experiences about artists and topics they love. Go to OsirisPod.com to see all the podcast events and other varying content they have to offer. Um, as I always point out, they're swelling um, growth and just the podcasts that they are introducing this fall are outstanding. Music fans will recognize these names. David Crosby's in uh, one of those. Scott Metzger's in another. Uh, really, go to OsirisPod.com to learn learn uh, what's going on over there. Um, so before we get going, just a, a couple things. He, um, you wanna, you're going to want to follow um, Samuel on Twitter. He's always dropping knowledge there. It's at SJMMCD. That's at SJMMCD. 
You can check out all his work at SamuelJMM.com. That's SamuelJMM.com. Really links to almost everything he's, um, he does. Um, and he just started a website, and we talk about it towards the end of the interview. Um, it's called Epilogue. So that's EpilogueMag.com. Uh, check that out. I know I'm going to as they start building that site. Um, as we're going into this interview, um, due to technical errors all on my part, we, we did I did lose the first three minutes of the interview. Uh, but in it, um, you're discussing one of his articles. The first one I came upon is called Life Cycles of a Leaf. And at the heart of the article is, uh, is a business he started uh, soon after college where he was trying to design a new way of growing food through hydroponics. And that opened up his eyes to the absurdities of our current fossil fuel food systems. Um, in the article, he kind of walks us through these absurdities, through what happens in the package of, packaging of salad greens. And, and so he's, he's talking about what's so, so problematic of, of bringing these you know, lettuce to, which was grown mostly in California, all the way to our kitchen table, and just how many you know, steps along the way where fossil fuels are used. So, um, you know, you pick up a little bit into that question that he's answering, and, and we just take off from there. So here it is, my interview with Dr. Samuel Miller McDonald. And then they're going to your refrigerator, and then when it's all done, you don't need it anymore, the greens themselves, whatever's left over, is probably going to a landfill, which is a, a major source of methane emissions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the packaging is, is getting put on a ship and shipped somewhere if, if you recycle it. If you don't recycle it, it's going to the landfill, contributing to those, those emissions. If, uh, if you do recycle it, it's getting, on, getting put on a barge and you know, you're burning massive amounts of, of uh, you know, probably diesel to, to ship it over. You know, uh, used to be China, not China any longer. They're not taking it anymore, but uh, it's getting shipped somewhere. So it's you have this incredibly uh, energy intensive, fossil fuel intensive, high carbon emission uh, industry just to get the simplest, most basic food onto people's plates. Yeah, you pointed out um, out, uh, 27 steps um, where fossil fuels are used in just that process alone right there. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, you know, depending on how you measure it, you can, you can find more as well. You know, that's, yep. that's not including the supply chains of all of the, you know, material, uh, you know, the tractors and the, the factories, you know, the big warehouses where they're processing all of these and the conveyor belts that they're using. Uh, you know, there's, there's so many, uh, supply chains built into that, uh, that, you know, you're not counting within that 27 to 30, uh, fossil fuel inputs. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's Not a, a little. Good look. It's a, you were also talking about how um, you know it people. It's kind of bad for our health too. Everything that was happening. I mean, you mentioned that um, you know it, it sickens forty eight million people a year and leads to food scarcities. And you know, I always I like the term you were talking about uh, from far, farm to garbage. How sixty five percent of that food is going to rot before you even eat it. I mean, problematic on uh, on many levels. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, habitat loss, you know, the, yeah. the fires we're seeing in the Amazon are, are just clearing, you know, clearing the land for mm-hmm. these huge agricultural projects. And, and, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, the carbon emissions are kind of the most 
dire problem in a in a way and in, in a you know in their long-term impact but yeah the, the negative impacts of this food system extend to public health and uh economics and labor exploitation you know all these all these different things that uh that you can you know if you start to decarbonize the food system you can start to address some of those issues yeah and so it, that's that's what i was it, gonna ask oh i'm sorry Go yeah ahead. i was gonna ask oh just, that leads to where um you know, never an easy uh, uh, question to answer. But like, what is the answer then? I mean, obviously, move towards decarbonizing the uh, the food system. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's it's not clear what that looks like. Yeah. You know, the uh, food is maybe one of the hardest or the hardest sector to to get fossil fuels out of. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you look at electricity, for instance, and that's not easy. But you still you can sort of keep the general system intact and swap in, you know, wind and solar and nuclear or whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's plausible you can decarbonize that system without completely dismantling it and replacing it. With food, it's less clear. Uh, You know, I I can't, I don't know a way to, you know, legit decarbonize food without completely reforming the entire system. And, And it's because you have all of these, you know, just intertwined aspects of it that are completely dependent on fossil fuels from the ammonium nitrate, uh, you know, producing the fertilizers to uh, the pesticides to mm-hmm. clearing the land and, and sort of preparing the land uh, to plant and, and destruction. It's just, it's, there are so many, it's, so many it's, layers it's, to it that are it's, it's dependent. Daunting. It's definitely a daunting problem, but I mean, you got to think that it, it, and you point out so well in this article that you know it's got to everything's got to be a little bit smaller. I mean, local scale, shorter supply chains. I mean, just you know, pr- pr- you know, bring in ecologically sound principles into the whole thing. Exactly. Yeah, and you know, the point of the piece was sort of to try to envision how that could make people's lives better. Yeah. And I think that you know, one of the things that's often missing from these conversations is that this really is an opportunity to uh, create a system that's not just, you know, lower carbon emissions or whatever, but is better for people's lives and lifestyles and health and, you know, well-being. And um, I think, you know, this piece was trying to imagine what, uh, what a better, healthier rural lifestyle could look like if you took out all of these fossil fuel inputs. Yeah, I love um, how um, you you talked about how pe- many people would ac- actually love to be a part of a of a robust food system and actually get their hands dirty and what that would mean, uh, the type of meaning that would provide to people's life, which is great. I was wondering, you know, so many who wave the flag of of capitalism so aggressively always talk about how these things are need to be fixed by the market or by that. But I mean, you also talk about how the government can help in this way. How could um you know the government help in in, in food uh, the food system changes? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, what's what's so kind of frustrating and difficult about that is is the food system as it is now is not some like perfect utopian free market. It, yeah. It's heavily subsidized, and the the government is is putting its you know putting its thumb on the scale for large industrial consolidated operations. And, uh, you know, all the laws and incentives are aimed at making, you know, commodity crops uh, bigger and, and a, a larger share of the market. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, 
which is not to say that if you took away those incentives that it would, you know, the market would fix everything and, and would make it a, you know, a, a more desirable, less carbon intensive, whatever, uh, food system. It, it almost certainly wouldn't. Um, but I think what, one thing that we can be doing right now without, you know, there's not this one silver bullet solution to this, but, uh, one thing that I think could help a lot would be putting in more incentives for smaller farms for mm-hmm. basically making it economically possible for people to go and start and sustain a small farm that has these agroecological principles at its basis. And, um, you know, I, another stat that really surprised me is, uh, just the suicide rate of farmers in yeah. the States. It's like, that, that like the highest. Sick. Yeah. It's, it's, and that's you said it was double, completely, double that of veterans was was the state. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's crazy. Yeah, it, it's crazy, and and it's it's completely driven by this by these economics that that value the large consolidated farms that are killing the small and medium sized farms in the country. And yep, the system and it's, is failing the farmers for sure. Yeah, completely. And it's and you can't you know you also can't just assume that having small farms is going to fix the problem. Sure. Also, you know, it's not. Uh, but but at least if you if you make it possible for people economically to start and sustain these these more uh agroecologically sensitive uh farming operations then at least you can start to have those come in and compete with you know this giant lettuce farm that is in California and shipping not high quality greens over to New York you know they've already started rotting when you buy them because they've They've been going through all of these processes. They've, you know, had to cross the country, and um, and you just it's it's really difficult for, you know, small farms, uh, you know, small farm in Hudson Valley or, or whatever to compete with that in these big supermarket chains and and uh, yeah, you know, compete with these massive companies and massive supply chains. No, it seems, it's, it's, seems to me the it's something like oh, go on. It, it's something like like two companies. Yep dominate that market so that's crazy yeah uh, so yeah it seems to me the subsidies are clearly going to the wrong place so this sounds like a whole um revamping is necessary and you know there 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 needs to be revamping in so many ways if we're really going to tackle this this uh, you know existential threat that is that is real as can be and so in one of your articles the city of tomorrow um it envisions this big change and, and talks about what the city of tomorrow that is uh, greener and, and more sustainable uh, looks like, but what is wrong um, with the way cities are, um, you know, have been crafted in our country that that makes them uh, that that requires this this giant change? What's what's what what have we done wrong in setting up most of our cities in in this country? Yeah, totally. Again, a, a massive massive question. I think the um, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm sorry, it, laying it on you. <laughs> Well, uh, so, you know, if the, if the life cycle of the leaf piece was kind of what does, uh, you know, decarbonizing rural life look like, the city's piece was what is decarbonizing urban life? What could that look like and how could that make it better? And um, it starts with this premise that uh, fossil fuel cities are, are awful in so many ways. There are all of these ways in which injecting huge amounts of, of, uh, of fossil fuel industrial um technology and processes have made cities just not pleasant places to be. Um, so it starts with kind of a, the sensory experience of a city. You know, you, you 
what does it look like? What does it sound like? It smell like, and, and all of these things. And, and making the case that, uh, you know, when you have these spaces that are, are like built for cars, for instance, uh, that's going to make it a very unpleasant place to be. It's, mm-hmm. it's dangerous. It's loud. You know, it's, it's, uh, smells like diesel fuel. Um, the, the existence of things like skyscrapers, of these massive, you know, glass towers is completely the result of fossil fuels. You can't really uh, build or sustain those if you don't have these injections of high density uh, energy. Yeah. And um, just the, the fabric of cities has been completely shaped by that massive injection of high, highly dense uh, energy. And, um, you know, the New York city skyline is completely the result of fossil fuels. And, um, and that's just aesthetic. You know, if, if you start looking at some of the more, uh, abstract aspects of the modern city, um, things like just the, the rampant inequality, uh, the loneliness that is, uh, so, so rampant in them, the, um, bigger city, you know, the, the very unequal distribution of, of space. So like, you know, having really these, these massive penthouses that are just investment spaces, basically, mm-hmm. uh, that nobody lives in. Um, all of these things are either directly or indirectly tied to this sort of fossil fuel industrial economy. Yeah. And, um, you know, again, I think it's a case of if you decarbonize the city, it doesn't automatically, you know, uh, make it a better place to live. Um, mm-hmm. I, I started the piece looking at pre-industrial cities and, uh, you know, while I think you can, you can gather some good aesthetic lessons from them, you know, you have uh, natural building material lessons that you can learn from that. You also had these pre-industrial cities that were also highly unequal and, and also, uh, you know, could be places of squalor and, yeah. uh, and destitution. And so it's, I think what, what that piece is driving at is the need to be very uh, deliberate about how you govern this transition from fossil fuel cities to non-fossil fuel cities. Um, and it's making the case that that's sort of an inevitable transition that has to happen, right? Because not only are cities massive emitters of carbon dioxide, they're like uh, something like 80% of emissions are, are coming out of cities. And a lot of that is due to cars and, and transportation. Um, so not only do we have to decarbonize cities just for, you know, to stay living on the planet, mm-hmm. um, but something like 14 out of the 17 biggest cities are coastal. Yeah. And uh, a large majority of cities are uh, threatened by sea level rise and, um, and in, in, you know, intensifying storms and, uh, wildfires and, and things that are, are definitely going to happen already. You know, this is, this is with emissions already baked in, uh, there's definitely going to be sea level rise. There's definitely going to be these in, more intense storms. Yep. And so there are going to be a, a lot of cities that will have to be, uh, people will have to move. Yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like either, either fundamentally reforming them or just, abandoning them and building new cities or, or, uh, you know, uh, expanding existing cities to absorb those, uh, refugees. And, um, so, you know, again, it's kind of a matter of the system 
uh, is definitely going to change. Cities are definitely going to change. And it's kind of uh, at this point a matter of who's governing that, what values are guiding that shift. And um, I think the the point of that piece was to say uh, if we don't have these sort of more egalitarian values governing that transition, there's a chance that it's going to be a a violent and brutal transition and that uh, the, the cities that get built in, in this post-carbon world, whatever it looks like, um, are going to reflect those values. Yeah, yeah. So what, um, in, in continuing my tradition of laying whoppers on you, what would, um, what would a better decarbonized city actually look like? Well, yeah, that is another whopper. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, holding, um, I'm holding. I got, I got that. No, I mean, there's some <laughs> ideas. I mean, there's obviously going to be new models of housing. I mean, there's going to be, you know, food and energy is going to be incorporated into, you know, everyday lives and how they're living. And I just, you know, you do touch on that a little bit in the article, which is great. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, the, the ideal direction, uh, would be no cars, basically. Um, you just kind of can't have cars, even electric cars depend on massive, again, fossil fuel supply chain. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's just yeah, not something that, yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, just the lithium and the, the cobalt, these, these, uh, minerals that are, that are scarce. Um, there's, you know, we're talking about shortages of these, uh, resources with only something like 2% of the vehicle market being electric. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea that you're going to just completely turn over the entire, car fleet in the world with electric vehicles just doesn't make sense from a, like there just aren't the resources necessary to do that. Um, uh, so car free, uh, I think, you know, one of the, uh, benefits of that is you start being able to pedestrianize, uh, larger swaths of the city and, and it's really nice, you know, like that's the, that's the thing that it's just like all the most desirable cities have these, major pedestrian uh, thoroughfares. It, it's just, it's a major quality of life boost. Yep. And eating spaces, um, spaces where, you know, people can find community. Absolutely. It's fun. Makes it more fun. Yeah, exactly. Totally. Um, and yeah, and I, I wanted to include that in the, in the piece too, just uh, the, the fun, you know, yeah. there's, there's so many, uh, so many of those kinds of things, lifestyle things that we don't think about when we talk about decarbonizing, you know, at whatever technology cities spaces. Yeah. And I don't know uh, people talk about what can, you know, the opportunity of these changes. You just hear, you know, we're going to lose this, we're going to lose that. I mean, I love your pieces speak so often of like, you know, this, there's bright sides to this. I mean, these changes can lead to less loneliness in these ways and just better standards of living and, and ultimately happiness. And that's, I mean, that's why, I mean, your pieces could be pretty scary at times, but there's also like, there's always this, tinge of hope you know these these ideas that you know this it doesn't have to be this way and another thing your work really does well um you have multiple pieces that speak on what people and you point to millennials but what people can do there's that article you wrote uh beyond fluorescent bulbs where you talk about four things millennials can do to fight climate change and um you know we don't have to go deep on each bullet point but um can you speak on that a little bit yeah you bet um yeah so i think uh the, those were the four things were like, uh, 
take control of the government, basically, you know, be able to uh, to lead in these institutions that uh, have massive trillion dollar budgets that are going to need to be mobilized. Um, another one was organizing community renewables. And I, I think I would expand that a little bit to say organizing, uh, you know, things like cooperative farms and, and, uh, once, once we get those economics right for it. Um, and, uh, a third one was talking about it a lot. I think there's a, there's a real fear, uh, about just talking about some of these issues and, um, you know, fear that it's boring or that it seems, you know, too apocalyptic or, uh, too technical or whatever. And, um, I think it's just, it's very important that we're, we're, keeping these at a, at a, you know, sort of top priority in our, our attention. Yeah. It's not um, scary to talk about, but it's just absolutely necessary. Yeah, exactly. And, and talking about it is, is the, you know, it's a foundation on which you're going to start doing things about it and acting and, and all of that. Um, and then the fourth was, uh, getting involved in these sort of direct action, uh, things, uh, you know, one of the, I have this other piece that's arguing that, uh, this new wave of sort of emergency activism, uh, climate emergency activism, things like Extinction Rebellion, uh, are really great. They're doing this, this fabulous, you know, street activism, uh, shutting down bridges and whatever. Um, and I think that's really important, but these also need a, a more radical flank. Uh, you know, the, the, the only way these sorts of movements have been successful in the past is when they've been, uh, sort of uh, accompanied by another side of it that that's willing to, to go further and push uh, push further into uh, actions that are more you know radical and more revolutionary and mm-hmm. um, doing doing a sort of maybe good cop bad cop kind of routine um, and I think that's really missing in the movement right now and I think that's something that uh, us young people can can be leading on and, and organizing um, so those were, yeah, those yeah, were the four yeah. main things. Absolutely. Um, and and uh, to piggyback off that idea, you did in, um, in an article called What We Must Do to Live, you talk about another thing that we can do, and it's um, it's simply love more fiercely. What do you mean by that? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, it's, like like I was saying, it's this, all of these things, these bad, scary things associated with, climate chaos and ecological collapse, these are already happening. And at this point, it's kind of a matter of, are there going to be, you know, 50 million deaths Mm -hmm. from this, or are there going to be 5 billion deaths from this? You know, these are plausible scenarios. And uh, I think the way, yeah, exactly. And at this point, I think the way that we keep it minimal is uh, to to care what happens to other people, you know, is, is to care about, the, the plight of, of people in the global South who are suffering this the most acutely um, and have the least resources to, to deal with it. Uh, it means being willing to take refugees into your country. And uh, even if, you know, even if there's, you have scarcity in your own country, even if you have problems in your own country, it's, it's still being willing to bring people in and, uh, and help them. You know, I, I think, which of those two numbers we hit, the 50 million or the 5 billion, is going to depend on how much we're willing to care about other people and care about strangers mm-hmm. and um, and how 
how expansive our sort of zone of compassion is going to be. Is it just going to be for our family or ourselves or our, our town, or is it going to be a lot more expansive? And um, I think that's something that, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to say right now what's, uh, yeah, what's going to win out. Which way it's going to go. Yeah, that love. I mean, it's going to take um, sacrifice and, and open up our arms. I mean, as climate refugees flee their homes, people are going to have to take strangers in. I mean, we're going to have to spend, uh, uh, like, these are all things that you point out in this article, tons of public money. That is our money to experiment with new technologies. We're going to have to give, uh, you know, take less and give more. Um, you just had an amazing quote in that, uh, that article. It said, perhaps the antidote to the uh, selfishness uh, running rampant in the world is a threat to our survival so immense that it demands an unprecedented selflessness. I thought that was just amazing. And that's, I mean, that is really Thank what, you. It's, what it's going to take. That was good stuff. Um, to jump another topic again, uh, a great deal of, of the blame for the United States energy um, policy is uh, aggressively and appropriately aimed at Republicans. But I appreciate how you don't let the Democrats off the hook either. Um, can you speak some on the bipartisan commitment to fossil fuels? I don't think that's talked about enough, how both sides do have this commitment uh, in this country. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's a long bipartisan commitment. You know, it goes back many administrations. Um, and it's it's essentially just a uh, an agreement among across ideologies across you know the political spectrum that uh, fossil fuels are uh, necessary. They have this national strategic value. The the military depends ex- very heavily on fossil fuels and access to petroleum. Uh, you know, I think it's it's something that even so like if you look at Obama's administration, right? Bush Bush was the oil president. He was, you know, he came from an oil family with lots of oil money and and helped uh, you know, his his buds in that industry um and invaded a country at least partly motivated by that. Um and but I, I also don't think we can let Obama off the hook because oil and gas drilling expanded dramatically. Uh, during his administration, uh, drilling on public lands. And, you know, he, he went and bragged about that to a room full of, uh, of rich people, a lot of whose money came from oil. And, and I think, you know, it's, it's uh, the, the Democratic Party has gone back on their promise not to take donations from fossil fuel companies. Yep. Uh, even, you know, AOC, this, this, uh, the most famous champion of the Green New Deal, mm-hmm. supported this bill that would spend half a billion taxpayer dollars to expand natural gas drilling overseas. Yep. Um, and it's, it's not just in the States too. The, the labor party in the UK, uh, supported opening the first, uh, deep coal mine in decades, just days after they announced the climate emergency and the, you know, Scotland's, uh, center left party announced that they were going to support expanding oil and gas drilling days after announcing a climate emergency. So it's, it's something that there's just this really stubborn, uh, commitment to, uh, across the political spectrum and, uh, and it's tied to these really, you know, uh, these things that are central to statecraft and, and yeah. central to the, the country, uh, just like I said, the military industry, uh, food and agriculture. And it's just something that we've gotten ourselves so dependent on it that, uh, I think it's, 
it's hard for any uh, government to make these kinds of real commitments to to turn it down. Like like Scotland, for instance, is talking about this uh, independence referendum. They want access to those that North Sea oil and gas so that they have revenue coming in from that. If they're going to go be an independent country, you know, it's it's strategically very important to them to have access to those uh, to those minerals. And and I think it's just it's this fundamental problem of geopolitics and and the the sort of uh, you know anarchic state of geopolitics where you have all of these nation states competing and the the one with the most petroleum yeah. uh, is basically the one that, that's going to outcompete the others. And, yeah. and uh, it's scary. It's, yeah. I mean, it really shows the uphill battle, but I mean, it's that it's, it's, it's such a necessary battle, but yeah, it, it it's disheartening. It's scary. You've also talked about how, um, you know, how, uh, you know, the authoritarians, like they use these, these crises to seize power. And there's just like, you know, all, it just it feels like the grip is tightening in a way. So I want to just ask you personally, um, and I kind of ask in the wake of, um, you know, these, these we saw a week of protests and strikes where over 6 million people um, in 185 countries from school children to trade unionists, they took to the streets demanding action. And, and um, I guess taken together, I believe that can be looked at as the largest protest the world has seen. And that gives me hope. And I wanted to ask you, do you have hope with all you, you know, all you, all your studies and, you know, your expertise? How do you, how do you feel about things moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's a tough question. Um, it's, it's something that maybe I would have a different answer to day to day, you know, um, depending on, on the, on the, whatever reports I'm looking at or the news I'm reading or the mood that I wake up in, you know, it's, it's something that's, uh, it's, it's not stable. Um, I guess, I guess what I'm trying to figure out now is what, uh, what I should be having hope for. And, um, you know, I don't have any, uh, hope that things are just kind of going to be, fine and stay the way they are and and the future is going to look pretty similar to the, the present and yeah, that's um, yep. yeah I, I don't I, that just can't really uh believe that but i think there are these scenarios uh that could be positive you know I, I like what gives me the most hope is just just thinking about what we could achieve what things could look like uh you know the visions that i, I tried to put forward in those uh in those pieces we talked about um just just holding on to the hope that that's still possible and and trying to have the humility not to believe that I know you know what's going to happen in the future or that I know what's possible. I just don't think anybody knows what's possible and um, I guess yeah, I guess just the the only way I can sustain any kind of uh, positive hope for the future is is to uh, is to just remind myself that it's it's so unknowable at this point uh what's what's likely to happen and what's possible and um yeah i think uh i think just holding on to those visions is 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 the best i got right now yeah absolutely and i mean holding holding on to hope is is crucial and yeah i take like you were saying you know different days different news cycles different pieces but yeah it's so good to see these moments where you see these people 
you know, actively getting together and outraged and, you know, you got to take those moments and, and use that as fuel moving forward. Hey, so I know you got a, a new website um, called Epilogue, I believe. What's go what happens there? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's basically, um, you know, we, we're kind of Matt and I who started up, uh, see this problem, climate chaos, ecological collapse, this big transition we're in, um, as presenting a, a crisis of meaning and a crisis of morality. It's, it's changing what it means to be human, uh, you know, challenging our sense of, of place within a sort of timeline, um, challenging our ability to relate to one another. And I think uh, there's not a ton of writing that I'm seeing in the world today that's, that's grappling with those really big existential issues in a way that's honest and, and in-depth and um, I think what we want to be doing is just uh, focusing really intensely on that transition and um, just grappling with it, I guess. You know, I, yeah. there's uh, there's not a lot. It's just a magazine. You know, there's not a lot that it can be doing. Um, but if it, if it can be, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to publish these long-form nonfiction essays, doing some short fiction, poetry, okay. uh, and hoping that, that these can just be... Um, ways of trying to, to, uh, you know, build a different sense of meaning or, or, uh, wade through the moral reckonings that have to happen, um, within this transition. And, um, yeah, we'll see, we'll see what it evolves into. Cool. But, Is that epilogue.com? Uh, it's, it's epilogue mag. Okay. Epilogue mag.com. Um, you might not have seen this question coming, but, um, there's a lot of uh, music fans on the Osiris Network, which we are on, and I noticed in, uh, on your website, um, which I announced in the intro and where to find you on Twitter and all that, but uh, you play some music. You're a mean guitarist. Is there any, uh, anywhere else where, we could, uh, <laughs> where you could see you play guitar? Are you in a band? What's going on? Uh, I wish, yeah. man. <laughs> I miss it. <laughs> yeah. Lot, I'm assuming you don't have much time with, what, with all your research and everything you're doing. Yeah. I, you know, try to try to push aside some of that stuff because it's, it really is therapeutic. And, uh, yeah, I feel like that's, that's, you know, that's, that's the redemption, right? Is, is having, having, bringing beautiful art and music into the world. And, uh, yeah, someday, someday I'll have a, I'll I'll get a band up there and send you a link. uh, Keep uh, keep, in the meantime, keep throwing those videos up on your site. But I, um, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk today. I mean, your articles, I mean, each and every one, uh, not only have I learned so, so much and uh, you know about this problem and just from from different perspectives, which is amazing, but they've they've given you action items and things to do. They've they, like we were talking about, they've given us hope in a lot of ways. So um, yeah, thank you for taking the time. Keep keep doing what you're doing. It's important. Yeah, you too, Michael. Thank you so much. It's it's really been a pleasure. Excellent. Thank you. This podcast is in the loop. The Legion of Osiris Podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com.
Podcast.